Hello? Hello? It's all around us. Alright, so, returning this week, we have Stephanie Quick, because you have put another show together. I'm really surprised at how quickly you put this together. I wasn't expecting a return bout this fast. I figured, okay, you know, it'll be about a month or something like that. And um, I didn't release a show last week, because the last show that we released was with with Mr. Greenfield, which was a Mm two-hour show, which I'm still kind of recoiling (laughs) from. (laughs) Man, that guy, uh, he was something. But, um... So we had talked off the air about doing a show about Santa Morte, and I've done a show on Santa Morte before, and I said, okay, I'm fine with it, but we've done this before, so as long as we can do it from a different direction, I'm fine with it. And then you were like, yeah, let's do it. I've already talked to her. Let's go, and we'll do it this weekend. And I'm like, uh, 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 okay, uh, all right. So full disclosure, before we get this show starting, I have done zero prep work for this show at all. I've been really busy, plus it's a holiday weekend, and fortunately, you know your shit. You've done a lot of research. You've taken care of all this. So once again, this is going to be a show where I just sit back and kind of drink my seltzer water, and uh, I'll probably contribute more to this one than the last one, however. So um, how did you, who are we interviewing? What's, where are we going to go with this? Where are you taking us this time? Okay. So first of all, you don't do nothing. You do all the audio and the editing and and all that, uh, getting it out there. And I really appreciate it because I have no idea about any of that stuff. It's really great for me personally to just be able to uh, concentrate on the uh, like cultivating a guest and studying and uh, coming up with questions and not have to worry about the tentacle part. It makes the work a lot less for me and makes it a lot more possible. So um, we're going to be talking to Dr. Kate Kingsbury. Um, so the previous Santa Muerte show that you guys did on Project Ar- Archivist, you interviewed, uh, you interviewed David Metcalf. Um, he, along with uh, Dr. Andrew Chesnut and Dr. Kate Kingsbury, are like the three people uh, heavily involved in the SkeletonSaint.com website, which is a great website to go to for all information about uh, Santa Muerte uh, from a more scholarly angle. Um and so uh, I guess David Metcalf is more freelance. Uh, Dr. Chesnut has been uh, kind of the first person who really wrote a big book about her from a scholarly angle. He is a professor of religious studies, uh, believe in uh, U North Carolina, someplace back there. Um, so uh, but then Dr. Kingsbury is uh, younger. She's I think she's only in her mid 30s. Um, she teaches up at University of Alberta, but she comes at it from an anthropological angle. And uh, she got her Ph.D. in anthropology from Oxford, so she knows her shit. (laughs) 
um, she also has a master's degree in philosophy. So she teaches a lot of like intro to anthro uh, field uh, methods for using uh to when you're studying out in the field doing ethnographic studies um so i thought it'd be great to have her on just from the the angle of uh how do anthropologists get out there and do this work because from the paranormal angle i know a lot of people are interested in the paranormal listening to this show we've got more anthropologists that are uh involved in uh, commentary about the paranormal you have eric wargo uh, jack hunter um has been very uh, involved with that uh, aaron daba from the esoterics blog you've had him on before uh he is trained as an anthropologist so i thought it'd be fun to have on anthropologists talking a little bit about how they go about what they do instead of just what they found out and what she has been doing um she has done quite a bit of research in uh, west africa field research um she's very interested in uh, religion and all aspects of uh, new religions emerging stuff like that but she has been studying santa muerte down in mexico among regions where people are very poor uh regions with a lot of indigenous people and especially uh, female devotees when you had uh, David on he was you were talking about uh, a lot of the kind of I like to think of it as the breaking bad Santa Muerte yeah yeah, I'll probably bring it up in the episode again but um, Mm -hmm. I think Santa Muerte gets a bad rap a lot of times because people tend to gravitate to the worst people that follow yes. the religion, and it's not—it's mm-hmm. not entirely all that it is. But that's something yeah. I'll get on. We'll, we'll get in the subject when we talk to her about it. And um, yeah. I will say another thing that it, it's cool that you're doing this stuff because you come at this from a very female perspective, and there's not a lot of females that are looking at the topics that you are and doing what you do. It's pretty much, um, I don't want to, well, I guess it is a male-driven kind of field for the most part. So it's nice to Mm -hmm. see a different point of view on these kinds of things and the way that you approach these topics uh, from the female standpoint. I've been trying to I've been trying to do that because like you like you, I've seen the lack and, uh, you know, I'm older now and I, I don't have like a like a position I'm not a published author I don't have a, some big career or anything so I can kind of speak more freely and I think I'm in a more of a position to call out you know some of the stuff or say well this is kind of sexist so you really need to bring in some different perspectives because um to me a lot of the well, basically most all topics you need to look at them from various angles and very various perspectives in order to really start to get a grasp on them so um i'm just real excited that she's doing this research and um also that we're going to be able to speak with her so yeah any, any chance i get to get scholarly people on the show i i gravitate and jump forward to immediately um before we do start the interview though i'm going to say that it's it's hotter than satan's butthole after eating a chipotle burrito up here right now so i've got a fan going in the background on me i don't know if people can hear it hopefully it's not that loud when it comes to the audio but um yeah i'm roasting right now so uh it's it's uh it's it's the holiday weekend and it's actually the holiday that it, it actually that we are recording today so uh Again, sorry if you hear a fan blasting, but uh, I guess that's it. We'll jump into this, and uh, here we go. Let's see where this takes us, and then uh, we'll meet up back at the other side when this is over with. Yay! This week, Stephanie has brought us Dr. Kingsbury. Stephanie, before the pre-show that we recorded, gave you one hell of an introduction, so I'm not going to ask you to um, go in and tell everybody who you are, because I think that's been covered and everything. I am curious, though, how did you personally get involved with Santa Morte and decide to go down this path of following this topic? 
Well, just to foreground that, so I did my studies at Oxford University in England, and initially I did research in Africa uh, on new religious movements over there, specifically working in Senegal in West Africa. And I was working on religion there and looking at the role it plays in identity, and especially the role it has when people are oppressed by the state, when people are impoverished, when people are excluded from having an active role uh, in their own lives and how they seek agency through religion. So that was my background. Now, having gone to Senegal, I was working with Sufi uh, people. And I did found that as a woman, you know, even as a woman, when you go into the field, you kind of as an anthropologist get this uh, special status as almost being genderless and you can go to places that perhaps, you know, people of your own gender wouldn't be able to go to. But nevertheless, I always felt that there was this hurdle, this barrier of me being a woman. So I was looking, I think, after that for something where I wouldn't feel excluded and where I would be fully included and be able to do field work freely. So I read the work of Andrew Chestnut on Santa Muerte, which I found absolutely riveting. And I so happened to go on holiday uh, to Mexico. And I had been teaching a class on Santa Muerte, and it seemed very interesting to me. And, you know, I am an anthropologist. I'm not an idle holiday maker, and I can't just sit on the beach sipping mojitos all day, as a lot of people do. So I thought, well, goodness, I need to, you know, find out more about Santa Muerte. So I started, as my spouse put it, interrogating people. But, you know, I thought it was just having nice conversations and they seemed pretty happy to talk to me about their religious beliefs and about Santa Muerte. And I found out that there was a chapel only about an hour away from where I was staying. So we organized various trips to, to do various cultural things uh, and nature things. And one of them was a turtle tour where you go to this beach and you release turtles, uh, newly hatched turtles uh, into the surf, into the sea so that they can, you know, uh, start their little lives. Uh, and we happened to have a very friendly and accommodating tour guide. And I started speaking to him about Santa Muerte and he really didn't know much about it and was as intrigued as I was, and quite intrigued to find a white person, a gringa, you know, talking about it. And I said, look, do you know where the shrine is? And he said, no, but I'd like to help you find it. So uh, I basically hijacked the entire tour to the shock and horror of some of the people on that tour. And we tracked down this Santa Muerte shrine on the way back to the, the hotel where I was staying. And... Um, went into the shrine it was absolutely beautiful and immediately struck up a conversation with the owner of the shrine who was an elderly lady in her 70s um, and with whom I just immediately felt a rapport and hearing her story talking to her I felt that just so much has been miscommunicated about Santa Muerte as a narco saint as a harbinger of violence and promoting you know death to enemies and yes she does have that side to her but I felt that so much more needed to be looked into and needed to be said so that's how all of this started. I got to say at this point I love the symbolism of 
um, you were releasing turtles on the beach because, uh, as we're going to get into a little uh, later, um, I wanted to talk about uh, some of Santa Muerte's um, more feminine or female uh stereotypically female uh, miracles that she works and magics that she works. She's known as the love sorceress. That's how she was originally known. And she's also known for healing. But I love your releasing turtles, which are, of course, very associated with the new world, right? Especially North America, but, the tur- you know, uh, Turtle Island, right? Mm-hmm. And there, all over the world, there are these... Um, uh, goddesses associated with love and they are very much associated with the sea right uh, in uh, Voodoo you have Erzuli Frida so it's like you're in the, this very uh, space where you're making a uh, new life this offering to something very much associated with and these you know uh, what? love I goddesses to say, just yes. to mm-hmm. there, my turtle was the first to make it to the sea I love it very auspicious, yes. <laughs> very auspicious yes <laughs> So, um, yeah, I was very interested in your work. Um, Can you talk about how, uh, first of all, okay, so I wanted to uh, to talk to you about this because um, I studied anthropology at uh, UC Santa Cruz and UC Berkeley in the very early 1980s, and I didn't get a degree because I had all these health problems, but I did complete all the coursework uh, for a degree with the emphasis in archaeology. So I have a a strong interest in that study as uh, still, and I have a little bit more of a theoretical background Though it's, I'm sure, outdated, so uh, let me know if I ask something uh, that's been, you know, out of date at this point. But it seems to me that what you're talking about a lot is developing relationships with other people with the informances, like they'll often be uh, referred to study subjects in ethnography. And I was wondering, did you have a knack with people from the time you were small? Did you develop it as you, you know, went through life? Or I think I'm just naturally a very curious person. Mm-hmm. And and I'd say I'm also a very empathetic person, and I think that those are key attributes to be a good anthropologist. And you need to be a good listener. And also because you know, as as most of us have as women, I've suffered a certain amount of of sexism, which of course women in Mexico have suffered way worse. And I think that that immediately put me on a good footing with the uh, owner of the shrine, mm-hmm. who is an unconscious feminist at heart. I mean, this is a lady who told me I'm never going to cook another meal again in my life for a man, whether it's my son or anybody else. And just immediately hearing this sort of rhetoric, I think that we were able to, to get along because I had a sort of similar outlook. And then she introduced me to, to the many women in her family and her entourage. Um, and what I have found with female Santa Muerte devotees, at least in Mexico, is that a lot of them are quite feisty, quite bold in their opinions and, and have a longing to be independent. And that's how they are drawn to Santa Muerte, because she is unlike the Virgin Mary, you know, who's just in many ways, you know, Jesus's mother, a virgin, all these things about her that make her quite a submissive character dependent on men. Santa Muerte is seen as single, as independent, as powerful, which is also what drew me to her. So I think that that allowed me to have certain commonalities, not only with the folk saint I was studying, but more importantly, with the women that have created her. So what, let's see, I have a couple of uh, definitions I wanted to get at here. Um, One of them is what is a folk saint as opposed to like a non-folk saint, a sanctioned saint? 
So a sanctioned saint is a product, let's say, of the Catholic Church, right? There's someone who's been officially recognized by the Catholic Church. They are uh, recognized and, you know, the Pope uh, recognizes them. They have feast days. They're part of this whole Catholic tradition. A folk saint is literally a saint of the folk, of the people. So many times, you know, people can't really relate to saints per se, because a lot of them have lived, you know, many thousands or hundreds of years ago. We don't really know much about them. They don't feel particularly familiar to us. But a folk saint is someone, usually someone who's been alive, that had a story, you know, that was living locally, say in Mexico, you have Jesus Malverde, supposedly a bandit who actually lived in Mexico and then was hanged. And so people can relate to those folk saints because they're someone who lived locally they're based or like santa muerte who was not a person that ever lived they're based on cultural motifs cultural ideas they're based on cultural familiarity and that makes them a lot more appealing to people than someone you've never met right you can imagine them a lot more clearly and the other thing i'd say about folk saints is because they're not tied to these roman catholic traditions that you don't have to adhere to all these roman catholic morals you don't have to be a good girl or a good boy you can be a bit naughty around the edges and you know no one's going to tell you off for it <laughs> you're the big appeal so uh, another thing um that i wanted to get at was this whole idea of a syncretic uh, religions or syncretic faith. Um, I was reading online that is basically when you have two separate traditions that are coming together. And it seems to me that in the 1940s, anthropologists uh, noted in Oaxaca, one of your areas of study, that you had these female devotees that had kind of combined some of the like the grim repress from Europe with uh, these um, Aztec or Zapotec uh, death deities from uh, the prior to the Columbian uh, era. Um, and so how that uh, comes together, and as you say, it's very much, it seems to be kind of an organic process and a process of resistance because the during uh, colonialization, the Spanish and, and the Catholic Church especially was very concerned with making sure that everyone converted. I'm in California. Um, actually, my on my mom's side of the family, we go back to the Chukchansi tribe, which is a Yokut tribe in California, east of Fresno, kind of south of Yosemite in the foothills. And... Um, we, you know, we don't have any language. My mom could have been a tribal member, but it, that tribe has been kicking everyone out for decades. And even though there is not, we didn't learn about it in school, we had that knowledge through our family of how the uh, Native peoples have been treated by the missionaries, the Spanish missionaries. And my mom never let us set foot in a mission, you know, while we were under her roof. Because of that, how that, you know, the, how that had gone down. So I'm very interested in how you have kind of like you say, you have these uh, huge hierarchical uh, bureaucratic structures, for example, the church or the government. But then you have these other um, traditions that are, you know, coming through, uh, you know, traditions and civilizations and cultures that have been in places for uh, centuries, decades, whatever. And how the people on the ground uh, bring elements together to come up with these new things, for example, Santa Morte. 
Mm-hmm. And I would say most religions are actually syncretic. You know, in yeah. Christianity, we see a lot of pagan yeah. ideas. And syncretism is not just one or two. It's often three, four or, or more. You know, everybody's invited to the party palace. <laughs> um, but with Santa Muerte, what I would say and my view on it, uh, which is a view that acknowledges the indigenous presence in the faith, against some authors who have denied this, which I really don't like. My aim is to decolonize our knowledge of Santa Muerte, because I think if you deny her indigenous origins, you're really perpetuating colonialism. It's a form of neo-colonialism, trying to, you know, expunge something of its indigenous origins and say, oh, no, it's all European or it's all American, you know, North American, uh, you know, and and not looking at the pre-Hispanic origins of things. So my view on it is is one of the long durée, the long duration. This is an idea put forward by someone called Brodel, who said, you know, in history, we have a lot of change, but we have a lot of continuity with, especially, you know, within religion, culture, motifs that are long, long standing, not talking about a couple of hundred years here, you know, talking about thousands of years. So what happened with Santa Muerte is that in pre-Hispanic times, there were a lot of death deities in Mexico and elsewhere across Mesoamerica. So the Aztec, as you know, had Mixtecasihuatl, the female death deity uh, who presided over Mictlan, the so-called underworld it's been glossed as. Uh, You know, the Mayan had Yumsimil, who was also a death deity. The Zapotec had, you know, a death couple, much like the Aztec, where Mictecasihuatl had her own little death husband there. But it's all about the ladies today, so let's not go into that. Um, The Zapotec (laughs) had Shanashi Quequia and her husband. (laughs) So, you know, we're seeing a lot of of death deities. um, And... Amongst the Zapotec, veneration of death deities was the most important. They were at the top of the hierarchy of gods and goddesses. You know, for the Aztec, they were less important. But uh, the Zapotec built a whole center called Mitla, which is actually called Leobar, actually, in Zapotec. Uh, Mitla is the Nahuatl appellation. Um, but anyway, so people were venerating death deities. And the view of death, you know, we're very afraid of it in the West. It's very fearful. It's very much about finality. This is the end there's nothing more death was not about finality it's not about the end in mesoamerica as it is you know in the west where we think there's nothing beyond that or you go to heaven and you have to you know grieve your loved ones and they're gone forever it's not about that in mesoamerica death is about power it's about regenerating life it's death and life are inextricable they're interdependent you can't have one without the other and no one's fearful about that i mean let's begin with the fact that you have ancestor worship, which is very prevalent in Mesoamerica, where you don't consider the dead as completely gone. You know, it's not like in the Western world where, oh, someone died, you have to grieve and move on. No, I mean, we have Day of the Dead in Mexico, right, where every year the living um, celebrate the dead because the dead are said to to come back and intermingle. So you have to understand that death is perceived in a completely different way in this culture. So then the Spanish come along 
and they bring all these religious icons and they want to convert uh, locals to Christianity and they see all these death deities as devils, as demonics, as demonic, as satanic, which I think is where we get this discourse today that Santa Muerte is satanic. That's where it comes from. It's very neo-colonial. So, you know, they want to expunge all these beliefs which they think are very dangerous and save the souls of these poor barbaric people. Which is funny because, not to cut you off, but Santa Morte is viewed at viewed as kind of like a Catholic saint, for the most part, which, which the Catholic Church does not like at all. They they like they can't stand it. But in from what I understand, it's like well, the way they look at it, well, death comes for all of us. So you know, why, there's there's nothing that that is the, it is the great equalizer of everything. So why not you know worship death or death as a saint for the most part? You know, to intervene on our behalf and and do what we need to do. And many of them will tell you, yes, when I pray to Santa Morte, things happen. When I've tried praying to the other saints and nothing happens, but when I pray to when I pray to my saint, you know, I get results out of it. And again, as you said, it's not looked at as an evil thing. It's just another process in life. But it's it's um, as I was saying before before the show. I think Santa Morte gets a really bad rap because everybody tends to focus on the narcos and things like that, and not on the common folk and the poor people that that look to Santa Morte for for their you know for their spiritual needs. Exactly, so. and I want to go into that in a bit. But let's start off with her background. So the Spanish come along; they bring all these icons to try and convert the local people. You know, statues of Jesus, and also they bring, uh, you know, statues of La Parca, the Grim Reaper. So the female form of the Grim Reaper, which is what you know the Spanish use. They use a female form of of death, right, to represent death. So for them, this is just a representation of death, right? For the Spanish, nothing more. But obviously, you can imagine that the indigenous people having all these death deities being denied the worship of their death deities, and this on pain of death sometimes, by the way, um, see probably this figure of the Grim Repress, and they probably think, well, hey, you know, this looks like Mictecasihuatl, or this looks like Shonashikwekuya, right? So, it's probably highly likely that they started venerating her. And, and there are records to say that, you know, skeletal, a skeletal figure was being found worshipped in, in the colonial archives and those people were, were punished. And because people were punished, probably the whole thing went underground. I mean, there are other records in actual colonial archives also of other figures like Jesus being associated by the Zapotec because they couldn't worship their god of the hunt. They thought, well, he looks a bit like the god of the hunt. We can see how that would work. So they would go to the church and they would pray to Jesus, but secretly they were actually praying to Nosana, the, the god of the hunt, right? So we can see how this whole process of syncretic identification took place. Anyway, I wanted to say right there, I wanted to reemphasize what you're talking about there, because um, sometimes you say, well, it seems like this might have happened, blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, it seems like them. But then you look in colonial records and you say and you can see that people are worshiping this skeleton that, that, you know, you have testimony from people that's been recorded saying, well, actually, we're, you know, we're go, uh, supposedly 
you know, worshiping Jesus, but we're actually in our hearts thinking about this other entity. Yeah. So it's not just a, uh, how do I want to say, you're constructing an argument in a particular a way based on certain evidence. Yes. Exactly, it's yes. It's not a hypothesis. Yes. We have evidence, and we even have evidence that the Chichimecas were worshiping a skeletal figure. Um, yes. You know, they probably didn't call it Santa Muerte, but what's interesting is that when I have gone around and this is why I don't like accounts by people, and I'm going to diss an, an author now, Claudio Lomnitz, who said, you know, the indigenous origins of Santa Muerte, that's bollocks. We have no evidence of that. But he hasn't done actual field work with people as I have. And I've gone around asking devotees, you know, what are her origins? Where does she come from? And people, especially you know, these are Zapotec people, there are indigenous people down there. The owner of the shrine is an indigenous Zapotec lady. They have told me, a lot of them have told me, oh, Santa Muerte's always been around. She just had a different name. You know, the Zapotec worshipped her, the Maya worshipped her. So for them, she's kind of a modern incarnation, kind of a wrong word to use because incarnate means to have flesh. And obviously Santa Muerte has no <laughs> flesh. But she's a modern version, if you will, of, of these death deities for them so i think that's very interesting and i don't think we should discount the opinion of people who are telling us that yes i and i'm wondering this is one of the questions that i have for you but um a lot of uh you've been doing study in oaxaca and um the literacy rate there on the whole is decent but uh, among indigenous people that you've been working with uh it is pretty high like i think i saw you wrote 44 uh, percent. so this means people can't go like a lot of people here if you want to learn about santa muerte uh and you're reasonably educated here in the u.s you can go online and read about it or you know watch videos but i'm wondering how uh these people access this type of information where i'm guessing it seems like from what you described the infrastructure is pretty sketchy in a lot of places um i'm not guessing they have like huge well-stocked uh, university libraries anywhere near where they can dig into this so how do they come to this knowledge uh from given their resources well this is my focus has been particularly on women as yeah. creators of knowledge around santa muerte and so the owner of the shrine where i'm studying uh in oaxaca in a small little um village outside of a big, bigger city she is as i said indigenous Zapotec. she can't read nor write she never went to school but yet you know she creates all sorts of knowledge around santa muerte this is probably from hearing from certain people but women in particular because it's largely been women and this is the focus of my work that own shrines that decide to start little chapels and these often start very small like enriqueta romero who is very famous in in, in mexico city for her chapel in tepito these often start as small little things in, in someone's kitchen or in someone's living room and, and people will see that you know little space and say oh can i give these bits and bobs to santa muerte and these women will say yes and then these shrines tend to expand and these women have become laissez-faire uh you know so i wouldn't say unwilling but involuntary is perhaps a better word leaders because they didn't go out and intend to become these leaders or you know create a huge shrine but it kind of just happened through a concatenation of events and in their role as leaders they create a lot of knowledge around santa muerte they give you know a lot i've seen it happen at the chapel People will come to the chapel, they don't know much about Santa Muerte, and they say, oh, I'll have a, I had a dream about Santa Muerte and was told to come to the chapel. Can you tell me more about her? 
Uh, and a lot of these people are actually women. And then Wella, as I call her granny, but her name is Eleanor, will start saying, um, oh, you know, what was your dream about? And she'll start interpreting the dream. She'll start giving them information about Santa Muerte. So this is a faith which I feel is very gynocentric. It, it's it, at the fulcrum it, are, are women. Women have really been at the impetus of this movement. If we look at the most important shrine in Mexico, it's owned by a woman, Enriqueta Romero. The first transnational movement to Santa Muerte was started by a woman, Enriqueta Vargas. We've had some male figures like David Romo uh, and others, but they've kind of flitted out. And it's been the women that have been at the center of, of this movement. That's, I mean, that's fascinating to me. And also, I'm going to speak uh, personally a little bit, just because, of course, I'm not just having a scholarly interest in this. But um, so when when I was uh, in my mid-teens, I became very ill, and I've had problems since then. Um, when I was uh, 21, I became extraordinarily ill and was expected to die, not just like for a few hours, but for a week's you know, the doctor's saying, I don't know if we're going to be able to pull this off. You guys better make your peace to my family. Anyway, they did a procedure. I had this big old near-death experience, which put me in touch with these entities um, that gave me a lot of knowledge about like meditative practices and the spiritual body or the energetic body, um, spiritual uh, ways of looking at uh, energy in the world, things like this, you know, kind of the typical mystical opening, awakening and contact with these, uh, as I like to put it, beings of uncertain ontological existence. (laughs) But um, so it's interesting to me to see, you know, how do you study this as an anthropologist? Because you have these these movements like this, and and on the one hand, you, uh, for example, I love it at, in your one article. I think it's supplicating Santa Muerte. Uh, you're talking about the, this evidence we, t- we spoke about with the colonial records and stuff and the syncretism, and then also you have a beautiful uh, picture of a uh, pre-Columbian Zapotec owl sculpture. And so you're uh, linking the uh, owl and its association with a Santa Muerte back to these pre-Columbian deities. Um, So you have that kind of uh, tangible evidence, written evidence, but then you're looking at this experience of people and, and the way that these movements tend to be shaped is through, for example, Santa Muerte, a lot of people that have dreams or visions about her. So, what is your stance as an anthropologist? Um, you know, you need to study this, but how do you address that type of dealing with that type of evidence, those type of phenomena? So, you know, I spent a lot of time talking with women about their dreams and their experiences and, and the theory that I have formulated. And, and by the way, I want to say I'm very sorry, you know, that you've had this experience of, of sickness. Um, Thank you. But I, I, I really hope that that's, you know good things have come out of it in, in terms of accessing you know new ways of knowing things. So I want to address uh, ways of knowing. This is very very important in my work in a paper that I've just submitted and and in the book Daughters of Death: Female Followers of Santa Muerte that is going to be uh, coming out with Oxford University Press. So I looked at it in this way for women. Women in the Mexican state. First, let's look at exclusion. And then let's look at inclusion. So women are completely excluded in the Mexican state, right? Why are they excluded? 
First of all, they have less economic opportunities than men, right? So they're not earning much money. Uh, they have obviously probably not much work at all. And if they do, it's often in the informal sector where they're not well paid and they have no benefits. They have less educational opportunities than men. They have no social security. And gendered violence, as you know, Stephanie, is, is a massive problem there. The femicide is, is dire. And this has been met with complete apathy by the government. We saw this year women were protesting across Mexico. And, and the government, uh, the, the president, completely dismissed their claims. So women have been excluded from the Mexican state. Their knowledge, their experience, their ideas have been excluded. They don't have power. And this has led to a lot of internalized sexism where you start to take on male ideas about women. You start to invalidate yourself as a woman. You start to invalidate your experiences, your own knowledge. You feel incompetent. You feel powerless. But let's talk about death and how that includes women and creates spaces of knowing for women. So death has always been associated with women, especially in Mexico. Because women, you know, have to face the risk of childbirth in which they could die. Women menstruate. Uh, you know, here's this mysterious blood, but yet they're not dying. Women have been associated, therefore, with liminality, with instinct, with passionate emotionality, and thus with death. And this is the very reason why they're excluded from the state as well, because it's imagined that they're incompetent because of all these things. But all these qualities allow them to be included in death rites. It's women that organize funerals. It's women, as I recently found out, that create the altars for Day of the Dead. It's women who look for the disappeared. And it is women, as I have just pointed out, that uh, run a lot of the chapels dedicated to death. And through death, they have created spaces of inclusion, where all these things, these attributes that they supposedly have, liminality, instinct, passionate emotionality, suddenly become qualities absolutely necessary for accessing knowledge, for accessing power, right? And so how do they do that? Like you said, Steffi, your near-death experience allowed you to access other worlds, other forms of knowledge. So for women working with death, they are able, through the intervention of Santa Muerte, to get her guidance, to receive supernatural favors from her, to supposedly work magic spells, and to access this liminal realm of death where they can get access to knowledge and power using this emotionality, using liminality that other people in the rational world, especially men, right, do not have access to. So women, instead of having this internalized sexism and invalidating themselves, suddenly become powerful, suddenly are validated through their gender and through death. Does that make sense? Have I explained that to you properly? Yeah, I was going to say that, um, I, no, I think that's a great explanation. And uh, I think that it, you know, if we have uh, listeners who are interested in exploring this little bit, uh, some of these ideas about liminality, anti-structure and stuff, there's a book called uh, by George P. Hansen called Trickster and the Paranormal. And he talks about Max Weber's work on charisma uh, and uh, bureaucracy and authority, charismatic authority, uh, versus these kind of ossified bureaucratic structures. So you would have the church, 
where, um, you know, they want to control everything. Uh, there's a very strict hierarchy. Uh, certain people are very much, you know, excluded. And then you have these uh, liminal uh, new spaces, which are actually very conducive in uh, his work, Weber's work as well, uh, to more paranormal events, for example, visions, dreams, access to these new forms of knowledge. And uh, so I, th- I think uh, I was actually listening to David Metcalf talking to Mark Stavish, and they were talking about transmission. And I disagreed with them um, because they were talking about, well, you know, you have Santa Muerte and she is a particular way and she's from this particular part of Mexico and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yes, that's true. And there is a line that you can follow in terms of uh, this world transmission of ideas about her. But it's a new religious movement. It is uh, a movement of the underdog. It is a movement very much structured around, like you say, uh, charisma of uh, death and knowledge of other worlds, um, paranormal events. And so by necessity, I, I would submit, you're going to have people from all over the place, you know, getting involved, you know, having visions or dreams or accessing her outside of what you would consider to be the normal um, avenues of transmission. So I would say that on the one hand, you can say, well, you know, it shouldn't be X, Y, Z because these people aren't acknowledging the Mexican tradition. But I, w- I would submit that with a lot of these uh, new, uh, powerful, uh, liminal religious movements, that, that part of their nature is to pop up in unexpected ways and to develop new stuff. I mean, it's bringing something new into the world. She's a very new uh, saint publicly. Um, so I would expect people, you know, the, you know, for example, like a white lady up in Minnesota or something might have a vision. She might interpret it in a strange way. And people, you know, because the other aspect with a lot of this stuff is if you have a vision, it can be very difficult to convey it to other people um, accurately. Um, so that but that's a whole other issue. But I just thought. I kind of disagree with that because I think part of it, the nature of these type of new movements is that they're going to be creating new stuff and popping up in unexpected ways. And people are going to be running with it because there is that uh, play within the, because there isn't really a big system, right? At the Catholic Church, it's a lot harder to get anything. The Catholic Church is a very, again, it's a space of exclusion, right? The Catholic Church, the Mexican state, these are all spaces of exclusion that don't include women, that don't include LGBTQ. And this is precisely why Santa Muerte draws such a plethora of people. And I think that, you know, we can't associate her, even though she is Mexican and has ancient Mexican origins. She's also, like you said, a very new figure and incorporates a lot of new age aspects as well. And because death comes to us all, this is a very inclusive movement. There's no male clergy in charge as there is, you know, in in the church or male leaders as there are in states. There are no leaders at all. There are laissez-faire leaders, you know, that have popped up voluntarily, like uh, involuntarily, like Enriqueta Romero or or Granny, as I call her, but I should call her Doña Elena. But, you know, they're not trying to say you should do this, you should do that. There are no regimented rules. And because death comes to us all, this is a movement that's open to any skin color, 
to any sexual orientation, to any gender, to any moral standpoint as well, which is why narcos find it appealing. But of course, you know, the movement has been said to be a narco uh, culture or a narco. She's a narco saint, but she attracts people from all walks of life. But they still follow the basic Catholic faith, the faith of everything, though, right? It's it's still... do, but there are a lot of other elements. I mean, the whole witchcraft element to it is absolutely, you know, anti-Catholic, I would say, in many ways, and which is also why the Catholic Church has a lot of issues with it. Yeah, but then you can take that back to, like, the practices of voodoo, because voodoo is very, the, the way that, uh, not to go on a sidetrack here, we'll get back onto it, but you take, like, the, the process of voodoo has loas and so forth that works very much the same way that Catholic religion does, and that was kind of how it slid under the radar, because they'd say, well, yeah, you have your saints, we have our loas, and it all kind of balances out and works the same way. Now, with Santa Morte, since it's not officially recognized by the Catholic Church, and they really would just prefer it to go away, the restrictions are probably, well, they are, they are less fluid and so forth, so you would have things like witchcraft and things like that floating in because of its um, non-governed, as you say, like a non-governed body or anything over top of it. But I, I thought it still followed the same principles of the Catholic religion and that Santa Morte was just worshipped as a saint. Am I making sense here or am I going in circles? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> there, are, there are elements which are absolutely, you know, very Catholic, praying to a saint, uh, lighting votives, the Santa Muerte rosary. And, of course, you know, a lot of Santa Muertistas have grown up as Catholics and so bring that Catholic background with them and use it in their faith. But for a lot of them, the church uh, has not been a satisfying experience. So part of the so, part they're just using it as a as a skeleton to base their religion off of then is, is more or less how it is working now. Was that a pun, a skeleton that you Yeah, that's what I said, no pun intended, but yes. <laughs> I'm trying not to be silly here, but yes, it's coming out that way. <laughs> Yeah, it's, you could, another pan, you know, it's the bare bones here uh, for a new faith. Um, but yeah, absolutely. But I think, you know, this, it's a very, again, inclusive faith in terms of the religious bricolages that you can use anything you want in it. And that's what I'm seeing uh, in European devotion or, or say amongst certain devotees from the US, you know, they're using crystals and they're using all sorts of things or they're taking a more Wiccan uh, angle to it. So it's absolutely very open to any interpretation that you want. But in Mexico, the way that I've seen it practiced is, yes, it has this very Catholic foundation to it. Uh, but there are also these other elements which come from Santeria, uh, which again come from the New Age and which come uh, from witchcraft, you know, the use of, of different colored candles and spells uh, used um, in, in concomitance with that. And also the use of body fluids uh, like blood for example, uh, is quite important when would be considered absolutely sacrilegious in a Catholic context. So I had a question, speaking of blood, about you have been very outspoken because I follow you on Twitter. We've had a number of really fun conversations and I very much appreciate that. Um, and I have to say, you uh, on a casual setting, you're a, a lot funnier. You're pretty funny now. <laughs> you and uh, uh, Dr. Chestnut really get into these like GIF uh, wars so and pun wars that are pretty up a little bit. Is that it? <laughs> <laughs> but I was wondering, because you've been very outspoken about being a feminist and about uh, advocating for 
the people that you work with and uh, for these women, you will present very plainly the uh, challenges that they face. Uh, I really like you have an article about uh, the Santa Muerte Shrine in Cancun. I believe that's uh, Yuri Mendez there. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And I really appreciated the first part because I live in the Napa Valley and it's also a tourist area. And we have a lot of people that came uh, from and through Mexico living and working here. I really appreciated how you very much presented a comprehensive picture of what people are going through there. I mean, lots of times you have a, here in the U.S. It's like, oh, well, tourism or whatever development is great because it brings in all this money. But you know, you really uh, draw a clear picture of how the, this money is going to certain people. Other people, are, as you pointed out, are excluded in these processes. And so I appreciate that advocacy. When I was at UC Berkeley, I had uh, one professor, uh, Dr. Nancy Shepard Hughes. She, oh, she's wonderful. Yes, I thought you would know her. I this is be I knew her uh, in, or took class from her in the very early 80s. Later on, she went and she was studying, I believe, in Brazil, and she would hear all these rumors of uh, children. Uh, being sold for their organs or mm -hmm. infants being harvested for organs without the parents' permission and stuff. So she started looking into it and she actually went on to, now she runs, I believe, I forget the name of it, but she's through uh, UC Berkeley and she has a group that is looking at issues of uh, organ harvesting or organ trafficking. Um, and she has found some instances uh, around the turn of the century, actually, where she did an investigation with some other anthropologists, and um, they found out that there was an organ ring that was exploiting people um, and ended up being prosecuted by the FBI. Uh, so... I like that she, and she, I read over the years off and on as I followed her a little bit, that she's gotten into hot water with some people who are like, well, you need to be objective, you need to not do anything, you blah, blah, blah. And she's like, wait, you know, you find out these people are being taken advantage of very seriously, and it's a very unequal situation. And so she is going to point it out, she's going to document it, and she's going to take it to the proper authorities I was wondering what your position is on that because you're very outspoken and I know that you work with a uh, entity in Uganda that is uh, Uganda for Girls, I think. Uganda for her, that's right. Her, yeah, yeah, which is helping to, uh, you know, get more opportunities and, and help women's situation in Uganda. So if you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I want to say that Nancy has been extremely brave and really stuck her neck out. I mean, she even posed as an organ trafficker herself yep. just to find out and, and put her life on the line. So I think that she's an incredible person. And I think that as an anthropologist, when you're looking at these kinds of situations of inequality, you end up being an activist for those people, or you should do if you have, you know, half a heart, but it will get you in hot water as you've seen, you know, I've been shot down uh, on many occasions and, and it is painful, but you know, if you believe in what you're doing and if you truly care about the people that you're working with, I don't think that I could do anything else. And I've seen, you know, and heard awful things uh, working with the women that I work with. And children, you know, are not, I mean, everybody's life is on the line in Mexico. Women are at particular risk because of, you know, the brunt of sexism, yep. where they are just disposable bodies and can be murdered with 
impunity. Nobody cares. And in line with this rhetoric of exclusion, if they get murdered, it's often their own fault because it's like, oh, well, a woman's place is in, is in the home. You know, she shouldn't be in the public area. So if she was out at night, you know, walking the streets or whatever and she got murdered, that's her own fault. Right. Uh, but children are not exempt from this. And talking to Nancy Shepard Hughes work, um, I was having a conversation with a devotee one day, uh, um, a, a granny of death, as I like to call her. <laughs> and, old, and older women, let me just add to that, have roles of power in this religious movement. It empowers older women a lot. Who Women you know, who you usually sidestepped and who are said to be inept, needy. No, they're very active in this movement and, and very powerful within it. But anyway, I was having coffee with her and she said, I've got to go right now. Because if I don't, um, you know, I've got to pick up my, my grandchildren from, from school. Somebody else will get there first. And that person may be an organs trafficker. Uh, they may be someone who's going to sell my grandchildren's organs to some rich white person and nothing will be done about it by the police. Uh, she had a granddaughter and of all the people that are missing, um, the, the high numbers are amongst young, young girls who are either you know, sold for organs or sold into rape and pro who are raped and killed or sold uh, into prostitution and, and sex trafficking rings, etc. So, you know, these are very real issues. And I feel that I have um, a duty to to talk about that. And, you know, if I can do something more about it, I'd like to. But but obviously, it's very difficult within the context of, of Mexico. And, and even it's dangerous. I mean, I've been warned by Dr. Andrew Chestnut, be careful what you write, you know, because you could endanger yourself. But at the same point, I feel like I have a duty to the people that I'm working with to, to at least write down their stories so people know what they're going through. Yeah, to me, it's kind of a uh amazing that even even just writing the truth can be a revolutionary act right mm -hmm. and i mean it's sad um i was reading um i'm going to uh put three articles that i of yours that i concentrated on for this interview uh in in the notes for this show or on my blog but one of them is a uh, mighty uh mighty mothers where you uh talk about um that grandmother that conversation and um where she you know you talk about how uh women who have problems are scared to contact the police because, you know, the police could rape you. And I remember um, being a young woman in the 1980s here in the Bay Area, and it was a it was a strange thing. I think here in the U.S. it's a little bit more uh, shaken up. Berkeley was okay, but if you got raped in Oakland, you, there was no, you didn't want to call because you'd be going for round two. I actually, uh, when I was in high school, I, we had a family friend who was a detective in the Oakland Police Department, and there was a, a serial rapist on the loose, and he actually quit because of how horribly that whole investigation was handled. Um, so, you know, I mean, and that's here in, you know, suburban America, where these issues are, can be that difficult. So, and in down in Mexico, I mean, just the, the flat out numbers are horrible. It was interesting. I want to call back to when you were talking about how women are uh, associated with death and associated with the disappeared. There is a podcast that I listen to that's called Unfound, and it's a, a middle-aged man who uh, interviews a lot of people who have family members or friends who have gone missing and he's done I don't know over 100 shows now they're really nice because they're uh, very long uh, very intimate conversations with them uh, but the vast majority of guests that he has on his show have been women mm. because those are generally speaking the people who are still looking for these people that have disappeared exactly. so yeah I mean it's 
it's sad, but it's it's interesting. I wanted to. Oh, so I just have a question um, because I've heard so many people talking about how Santa Muerte was discovered in the 1940s, and this gets back to how anthropologists do what they do. And I'm wondering who were the anthropologists who were down there then, and what were they looking for, and how did they come across her? Because I hear that they found it out, but I'm always wondering, well, what exactly happened? Yeah, I don't know what exactly happened. I mean, God knows what happens with every anthropologist, right? You know, we write, we write down what we think the public should know, but, you know, we filter yep. out a, a great deal of information, yes. right? I mean, even in my book that I'm writing now, I was like, well, should I mention the turtle tour? Because that doesn't look very professional. I'm on holiday, I'm on a beach, but I was like, hey, you know, I'm going to put that in. That was integral to the whole process for me. Yes. But, yeah, I think it was Francis Tor and Oscar Lewis, two American anthropologists, were down there doing, you know, pretty much what I do. And I think that's the beauty of, of anthropology is that we've seen we've seen quite some work now on Santa Muerte, but a lot of it is, you know, it, it, it's wonderful and, and documents a lot of interesting information. But I like old school anthropology as a style because you go down to the community and you stay a long time. And you do field work and you get to know people on an intimate, personal level. And that's when the stories come out. That's when gems come out. And that's when you're not biased either. Because, you know, if you're always asking the same list of questions, that's great. But people, you know, they don't always say do what they say and they don't always say what they do. Yep. So you kind of have to get below that. But anyway... Um, coming back to uh, Lewis uh, and Tor, I think they were just doing straight old field work like I am, documenting stuff, and then they this Santa Muerte figure popped up, and she popped up in the 1940s, uh, especially um, in the Costa Chica, uh, and especially amongst Afro-Mexican communities, venerating her as a love sorceress. And from the outcome from the outset, um, let me add to this my argument on women. From the outset, she was being worshipped and used by women to dominate men. So from the outset, this is about getting power over men, reclaiming your agency. And that's what my work is all about. It's about how women reclaim agency through death, which is the one space where they're included in because they're excluded from everywhere else, right? So from the outset, there's this prayer. The first known prayer to her is for women who have a naughty husband, men behaving badly, that's been fooling around behind their back, right? And they want him to come back, that's what the prayer says, humbled at their feet. And they ask for Santa Muerte to use that side, give them a good old spanking on the bottom. Now, I don't know if they say that, but, you know, <laughs> to bring him back um, humbled, and chastised, right? So from the outset, this is about women wanting to take control of things. And I think that that's what's been lost in a lot of the literature on this movement is the role of women, is you know, how are women using this faith to reclaim power, to have a voice? And we have to remember that's very validating for a woman to imagine a super powerful woman on your side, right? A supernatural female figure that's listening to what you're saying that's very validating in a place where you're constantly being invalidated and the, st the authorities are basically saying to you oh you can all die we don't really care right yep. and suddenly you have a supernatural figure on your side that's there to help you uh, with your goals with your ambitions that's very gratifying and there have been psychological studies to prove the power of prayer the power of feeling that someone's supernatural is 
it is there listening to you, validating you and validating your petitions. It helps you have hope. It helps you have optimism. And it helps you, especially as a woman, gather up internal strength to deal with you know all the trials and tribulations that you're going through i'm really glad we had this talk because you you know as you run across santa morte in the media obviously she is female um and if you look into it a little bit you can see the biggest shrines the the first shrines are started by run by women um the most prominent ones but then there's this disconnect because then you see these assassin narcos you know crawling through the desert with you know skull boots and it, everything's very with the, the drug lords and it's like okay how did it go from the whole woman thing but I, to this narco thing and i think that you know you kind of brought it back that way uh, about the inclusion of groups that are typically excluded from uh, power hierarchies and mm-hmm. uh, authoritarian bureaucratic structures government and the religious structures and then uh, really shed the light on why this would start among women why it would uh, be so strong among women uh, in Mexico and especially indigenous women because they are as you pointed out excluded from all realms except for this one right the most marginalized so this is a a form of of, a folk faith which as people have pointed out time and time again is for the marginalized but they've been looking at prisoners they've been looking at drug dealers who's the most marginalized in mexico women especially indigenous women because they're not only bearing the brunt of sexism but also the brunt of racism and also the brunt of economic exploitation i mean women are the poorest people in mexico indigenous people are the poorest people indigenous in mexico is synonymous with poverty and of course indigenous women are are the poorest and and also you know high risk of femicide because really there is very little care for indigenous people and and i've seen it firsthand they live in the worst of conditions they really do and that's what struck me when i met donya elena the zapotec owner of this shrine uh, down in oaxaca was that she had spent so much money on the shrine, had used devotees' donations to reinvest in the shrine, but she herself is living in a very, very basic wooden structure with a tin roof. Uh, I don't think she has access to running water in her house. I've seen her to water the flowers in the vases where, you know, people put that in the shrine. She used to trot down the road and fill up a bucket of water and then come back. Um, She only has one light bulb in her entire house that emits a tiny little feeble light. So this is, you know, we're talking about people living really uh, in extreme poverty. In fact, my partner found it very, very difficult to spend time in her house because there are chickens coming in and out you know it's it's not there's no air conditioning there's no proper windows Mm -hmm. and and people i have to say have very strong immune systems and i'm hoping that that's going to get her through if covid comes her way Um, because you know chickens are jumping on the table and then people are eating off of that table uh, without washing their hands and you know chickens have just been there uh, and they don't even have a plate right so um and that's one of the difficulties, again, let me say, of being an anthropologist. It's, it's nice to tour around and ask people questions when you're hanging out in places like that. You know you're going to get sick at some point. <laughs> <laughs> so are your shots up to date? <laughs> 
Yeah, it's more like okay. stomach bugs and stuff like that. But it's all it's all very much worth it, and it, and it makes you more cognizant uh, of of how fortunate we are. So people are really living with with very very little. Uh, so yeah, absolutely, that comes back to the marginalization and the need to find inclusion and spaces of knowing and spaces of of power where you are validated, especially as a woman. Pretty much, we've we've covered most of, of what I you know wanted to cover. I'm just I really appreciate it, and it's it's been nice listening to you talk because there's some of the uh, questions that I had. You know, you really ex- expanded on fully. I don't know why I used the verb expounded there because I don't think you were having an expounding vibe. But <laughs> it's funny. I got a. I don't know, over a decade now ago, I got Lyme disease. And I was always, you know, like a very smart and brainy and a smooth talker. And everyone in my family, I mean, like my baby sister's a lawyer, that type of stuff. Um, and it attacked my central nervous system. And since then, uh, sometimes I'll, I'll really have a hard time searching for words. So I'm glad that I developed a larger vocabulary when I was younger because there's always another word, but sometimes it'll be like, well, this is kind of pretty good. <laughs> it seems a little bit off. <laughs> but anyway, it's funny. Yeah, I just, I really appreciate it. I think it's fascinating and I'm really glad that we could um, talk about the the roots of Santa Muerte and also just... Um, you know, this whole other aspect of her with the uh, women's devotion and the indigenous and poor people that really, you know, gave gave rise to her uh, becoming a folk saint. So I do want to ask you one last thing before you're off the air, though. This is something that I've been curious about. We did the show with Metcalf. Oh, God, probably five years ago, maybe six years ago. And uh, right around then, it was Santa Morte was just beginning to to evolve. It was just beginning to spread out. Since then, you see it pop up in video games. You see Santa Morte pop up all over the place. And it's since spread into America. Have you seen an evolution in the religion since it began? Is it going into a new direction? Um, how has it evolved over the years, if it's evolving at all? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's just... <sighs> It's very rhizomatic. I would say it's not evolving in a linear, sort of trackable fashion per se. I would say there's been a lot of mis- misappropriation of it, especially in, in video games and you know the media being produced uh, in the USA and, and in Europe, where she's largely again always portrayed as as a narco saint, and again a symbol of male terror, much like voodoo is. Right? If you look at depictions of voodoo in the press, it's always about terror, barbarity, the other. It's very implicitly racist, and I see mm-hmm. a lot of that going on with Santa Muerte. It's very implicitly racist. It's about, you know, violent Mexican men and the threat that they pose. Um, but I think that as we're seeing it evolve, we I mean, at least I'm becoming cognizant of the way that ways that women are using it. There's also been studies on, on the ways in which migrants are using it, you know, people who are trying to get across the border or who've gotten across the border and are struggling in their new lives uh, in the U.S., so I think that we're seeing it spread more into the U.S. Uh, coming in with migrants in particular, as I said, who are using it to adapt to new life conditions. But I think that when they're doing that, they're also spreading it uh, amongst people in their communities. You know, or botanicas will start stocking Santa Muerte candles and other paraphernalia. And then someone might see it who, who's not Mexican, uh, who's from a different background and, and be curious and then start using that in their own way. 
ways. I think in Europe, uh, possibly in Canada and in the US, we're also seeing it being hugely associated with uh, white women who are using it uh, as a sort of uh, um, additional form of, of practice uh, in their Wiccan practices, for example. So I think that we're seeing it take on all sorts of new influences. And it's also become associated for, you know, non-Mexican people uh, with death, you know, the death positive movement. We're seeing a lot of that. Obviously, you know, in Mexico, they don't have anything called death positive, right? Uh, <laughs> but there's been all these conferences now, which I know... Dr. Chestnut has attended about, you know, being death positive, not looking upon it in, in an ill fashion. So, you know, I think the beautiful thing about Santa Muerte and obviously the dangerous thing when, when you talk about narcos is she is what Victor Turner called uh, a polysemic or a multivocal symbol. Polysemic means you can read her in many ways. Multivocal means that she can speak to many different groups of people. And because of that, you know, as I've argued in my work, women make goddess in their own image, right? Men, you know, this comes from Feuerbach's quote, which is men make God in in their own image. But I think anybody can make God or goddess in their own image. And I think that Santa Muerte, because she is so malleable, because this is a very loosely organized faith, because there are no clergy or people in power people are just constantly uh, adopting her and adapting them adapting her for their for their own uses and appropriating her and, and also misappropriating her right so there's just no telling in, in which direction she could go or which group could could take her up next I mean, I've tried to police her image a bit and perhaps erroneously because I don't really like the way that I've seen her portrayed in, in certain ways and in the media or in Penny Dreadful. And it doesn't really represent what I've seen indigenous people doing in their practice. But I guess it's a bit foolhardy of me because, you know, people are going to do anything that they want with, with an image or, or with a figure. Um, but, you know, I just find that it can be quite disrespectful in some ways. Um, but, you know, maybe I just have a chip on my shoulder as an anthropologist. Do you have a website? Um, you said you have a book coming out in the future. Is there is there anything that you'd like to promote while you're on here? I'll give you the chance to do that if you want. Um, I have, you know, academia.edu. I think Steffi has all of that uh, stuff. So uh, I do have a GoFundMe link that I might send you, Steffi, where I have been collecting funds uh, to finish my research because unfortunately with COVID-19, a lot of our research grants have been canceled completely. And, you know, I don't want to hit up your listeners for money, but if anybody wants to contribute towards my book, I am putting their name in, in the acknowledgement section of my book. And to continue this work, it is really important, you know, that I get access to funding. And also that money helps with, with my Mexican family of devotees who obviously when I go down there, I'm always looking after them and, you know, buying whatever granny needs. So it's not just completely egocentric. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's exciting. And your book is going to be titled uh, Daughters of Death. You're Dr. Kate yeah. Kingsbury. And uh, yeah, I'll... Uh, post that link uh, to the academia.edu and it has a bunch of great articles. Don't be put off that it's an academic uh, 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 .edu uh, website there because she has a lot of uh, very uh, uh, easy to read articles, uh, great yeah, it's photos. A whole mix. Yeah, it's a whole mix. Yeah. There's some hardcore stuff uh, yeah. that, you know, uh, are not for the faint of heart, but there's some, some really easy stuff and some little blog pieces that, that I think are <laughs> 
uh, are accessible for for anybody and not too boring. <laughs> well, Dr. Kingsley, uh, Kings, Kingsbury, not Kingsley, Kingsbury, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I don't know why I said that. Thank you for coming on here and doing this interview. It was uh, it was nice to hear you talk, and it was nice to cover this perspective from a different angle. And I've really enjoyed having you here and listening to you guys. So uh, thank you again for doing this. It's much appreciated. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak about it. And, you know, I appreciate the opportunity to bounce ideas off of you and see whether it makes sense to you because I am writing a book and, you know, Andrew Chestnut's book was kind of written at a different level. There is a lot of theory in what I'm saying. And I, I need to know that it makes sense to other people and that I'm not, you know, uh, going off into theoretical spaces that don't make sense to people. So, you know, your feedback is and your listeners feedback is essential to me. And I, I hope that what I was saying made sense to you. It seemed seemed to make sense to you, Steffi, right? That you understood. Yeah. The, yeah. Great. Oh, yeah. I understood all of it myself. It's it's nice because. It's like I said that um, this is something that's multifaceted. And as you said, it only gets portrayed in certain ways. And there's so much more to this. And as I said, also, it's been a while since we've done a show on this. So, you know, the way you're covering it is the evolution of where it's going and what it is. And it's a side of it that people don't see. So the more exposure that this gets put out there, the more because without exposure, without people talking about it, this is where myths grow. This is the the mm -hmm. lack of education and the lack of talking about this kind of thing is the that creates the dark area where misinformation and things get put out there. Because it's like you said, like uh, there's a video game that I play where Santa Morte's in it. And uh, it, the Ghost whole game. Recon? Yes, it is. Ghost That's it. Okay. Yeah. Go. You're very good. Um, and I was playing that. I'm like, yeah, I've, I've covered this. I know what's going on here. I, I see the point. But there's so much more to it. It's so... Um, mm -hmm. It's so multifaceted, and these things don't get covered. And you have covered. to remember with the narcos, you know, there are not, I mean, there are narcos in Mexico, but you have to remember they're a minority of the population. If it was only narcos that venerated Santa Muerte, you know, we'd, we wouldn't have more than a handful of, of devotees comparatively. You know, Dr. Chestnut said we have 10 to 12 million devotees. You're not going to tell me all those people are narcos, right? <laughs> exactly. And as you brought up earlier, it's also beginning to pop up in the magical community of magic practitioners. And, and Wicca and things like that. I have friends that have Santa Morte that they pray to, and they're not Wicca at all. They are magic practitioners, but they're not Catholic either. It's just something they look at and go, you know what? I, I identify with that. I like that. I'm going to embrace that. And that is something that you just don't hear about. You only hear about certain aspects of it, and you certainly don't hear about the female aspect of it. It always is, you know, the uh, homosexuality, things like that always get mentioned, but it's always mentioned in a, a dark and you know, kind of downgraded overtone for the most part. So to just have like voodoo, else, right? Just like voodoo. Yeah, that's is... why I brought that up earlier. Same. There's mm -hmm. there's parallels there. So to see oh, somebody shining a light into uh, darker areas of this and putting more information out there about it, it's refreshing and it's nice. And I I wish you the best of luck. So uh, again, you. this has been great. Thank you very much. And it's been a pleasure talking thank you, with you. Thank you, Steffi, for organizing. Yay, thank you so much, Dr. Kate. Yay. Hi there, I'm Logan. And I'm Lindsay. And we host the new podcast, Folklore on the Rocks, where we talk about folklore and lesser-known creatures, cryptids, and monsters from around the world. When we say lesser-known, we mainly mean that we won't be covering creatures like Bigfoot or Nessie or Chupacabra, just because they're discussed so often, and the world just has so many other awesome options to draw from. Every two weeks, we'll be diving deep into the legends and culture that surround a specific creature, and getting a bit tipsy as we do so. But don't worry. 
We do our research sober. <laughs> On the weeks in between, we'll be narrating and discussing folktales. So some will be historical folklore from the regions that our creatures are from, and some will be more like modern folklore, like no sleeps and creepypastas. You can find out more about us on our website, FolkloreOnTheRocks.com, on Facebook and Instagram at FolkloreOnTheRocks, and Twitter at at FolkloreRocks! So come on, grab a drink, join us, and let's dig deep together. Rising from the depths of a state called Michigan, two inebriated dorks prepare their plan for intergalactic domination. Mixing their extensive knowledge of geek culture with their insatiable thirst for alcohol, these two man-children bring you a show like you've never heard before. They will tell you tales from faraway lands and have you questioning their taste in beer. But make no mistake, friend, for the best coverage of your favorite comics, films, and TV shows, there's no better source for you to get your fix. So listen up, strap in, and prepare yourself as Jake and Tom conquer the world. That was a lot of fun. She was really cool. I don't know why I called her Dr. Kingsley. I don't know why I was thinking of Ben Kingsley. I have no idea what the hell was going on there. Because she's so buff. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that was pretty funny. I get a real sense of, and I feel bad, but I get a real sense of listening to her that she seems much like, which was why she was a great person to have for this topic, but she seems like she's somebody that's been marginalized in her research a lot. I really strongly got that feeling from her. And... I also got a sense of like the, I was just like let her go because she knows what she's saying she's got she's on a roll which is why I didn't talk too much because I she knew what she had to say she knew where she was going with it and she had information that she wanted to get out there but I very strongly get a sense of when she's on other shows or something like that that people just don't want to hear the stuff that she actually is researching which is kind of a shame. It is. And that's one of the reasons why I was so excited to speak with her and for you to, to host us here. Um uh, people that may uh, are listening won't know this, but she is uh, young and she's very beautiful and glamorous and woman and smart. And um, that can work against you in these kind of academic settings because people will find it very threatening, right? I kind of find it hot, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> There's well, the me bringing the show out again. <laughs> that I, I had to uh, communicate with you beforehand to let you know, okay, this is a, this oh, no, I never, like, I, super smart. I absolutely would not have ever have done anything like that. Uh, oh, I, no, way, I'm just so. teasing you big time because you're <laughs> such a big sweetheart. And you're also, uh, you know, great because you're very supportive of women and you, you really are supportive of s- smart women who are doing interesting creative things. But it can be a, kind of a double-edged sword. Um, because, you know, she is uh, young, she's doing uh, research with people that are marginalized, that are, uh, you know, grandmas who are very poor living out wherever and they can't read. It's not necessarily something that's very glamorous or people are going to get real excited about as opposed to like narcos that are doing human sacrifice and shooting it out with the border police or something, you know? Yeah, Um, one of the areas I definitely did not want to take this into. Yes, it has to be brushed on because it's part of it. 
But I, I, you know, I was glad we didn't spend too much time on that and, and went into the other folk aspect of it. Because mm-hmm. um, what she's saying is not wrong. There's, there's, she, no. She's very learned about this, but I think it's because she's a boots on the ground in there with these people doing this stuff directly. Exactly. So, she's. Uh, I was uh, actually discussing uh, her uh, previous to this with my husband, Anthony, who's a big fr- uh, has a lot of interest in Carlos Castaneda, who was supposedly an anthropologist, and I'm like, yeah, she's doing what uh, Carlos Castaneda said he did, but <laughs> probably didn't really do. Um, but, uh, yeah, is, can you hear the dog? He's... Oh, yeah, it don't anyway. matter. If people okay. can hear my fan, they can hear your dog. <laughs> okay. He's, he's a little antsy. But, uh, yeah, and then the other thing is that she's very, there is, a, as she was talking about, there, you know, these hierarchies, certain things, you know, like for, you know, males are on the, you know, the greater scheme of things socially. The fact is they're considered more important than women, right? So she has that going against her. And then in academia, in the world at large, you have this whole emphasis on, quote, objectivity, unquote. Um, so, you know, as we discussed in the interview, if you are decide to become an advocate for the people that you who are helping you with your research, you're not just studying them. They are helping you because you won't know anything unless they tell you or let you in to where things are happening. Right. Yes. Um, and so but this is seen as a lack of objectivity in certain circles. And so I think that that uh, counts against her as well. Um in certain circles. But uh, like you said, she really knows her stuff, extraordinarily articulate. Um, I would encourage people, if you are enjoying this at all, um, she has some great articles where she talks uh, about her interactions with people, some of her experiences um, studying in these remote locations. Um, And she has a lot of great pictures. Uh, If you want to follow Dr. Chesnut on Twitter as well, he always posts a lot of great pictures of altars and and things. Sometimes he'll post some things that she has uh, taken pictures of uh, when she's out working in the field. But yeah, I was just thrilled to be able to speak with her. As I said, I studied anthropology and I've been, uh, I haven't been able to pursue it uh, since then, except for as a hobby. And uh, yeah, it's just really fun. I got a sense of she's afraid we're kind of like, that I'm going to kind of like marginalize her or something like that. And Mm -hmm. I, I, I just got that vibe from her and i'm like no 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 you're you're gonna be fine i'm not gonna i'm not gonna do that to you in any way shape or form there's a few things that i've had to edit out of the show because of noises and stuff in the background etc but um you know everything she said i'm gonna leave alone just this the way it should be and i I feel kind of bad for her because i just like i said i feel like she gets kind of marginalized sometimes and yeah i know what it was like for me yeah, I, I mean, I studied at, you know, top universities, and I got there because I was smart and I had excellent grades, and the the bullshit that I had to put up with, I remember one time I was, uh, took a, it was like an intro to geology, actually it was um, taught by Luna Leopold, who's the son of Aldo Leopold, the guy who wrote Sand County Almanac, and Luna Leopold was a fantastic teacher, he was an activist himself as a geologist, uh, helping to preserve the Grand Canyon. Um, anyway, so we had the final, and th- there's been this TA at this class who's just been always like, oh, yes, you, you you women, oh, that's nice, you girls, you won't really understand the whole, you know, semester that we've been studying. So I go to pick up my uh, final and see how it's been graded, and he has a stack there. He's like, oh, well, you need to understand, Dr. Leopold writes really difficult tests, and no one ever gets, blah, 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 and of yeah. course, I ace the whole thing, also all the <laughs> all the extra credit. 
<laughs> and so he's uh, he's like, what's your name? I'm like, oh, look, it's right there on top. He's like, and you just the look on his face was priceless. I'm like, thank you, and left. But uh, yeah, I mean, just this, and I can't, and that was just me being a student. I mean, just the, it's crazy. So there is a lot of sexism, but I really admire her for uh, for her work and for being outspoken. And uh, I'm real excited about her upcoming book, Daughters of Death. That's a great. She, needs a, she needs a book. She needs a blog. She needs. Oh yeah. She needs something. She needs some way to get this information out there, uh, other than than what she's got now. So you know, hopefully, when the book comes out, she'll she'll get her just due. You know. Yeah, I think it'll be uh, real exciting because, you know, it is uh, Santa Muerte is just becoming more and more popular. And she has a very unique uh, take on her cult. And she's really done an incredible amount of research. So it's really it's exciting. So, yeah. Well, I guess we'll uh, we'll wrap it up. And uh, Mm -hmm. until uh, until next time you get a hold of me and say, hey, I've got this idea. But um, (laughs) I think I'm going to keep trying to pushing you into other directions for for things at the moment, though. But uh, not that I don't like having you here. (laughs) I absolutely do. (laughs) It's really nice to just sit back and and sip on something and and let somebody else talk every once in a while and then throw my two cents in here and there. But, um, yeah, thanks for doing this. Um, I really, really was not expecting this to happen this quickly. And it's, again, it turned out very well. You're, you're doing so well at this. I, I, I'm so, I'm so impressed by how far you've come and how fast you've done this. (laughs) Well, thank you. It's a, it's a lot of fun. And it's, it's, it's a lot easier for me because, um, of course we have this, uh, big friendship since basically the, the start of, uh, of this podcast. And then, you know, with you doing all the technical stuff, it just makes it super easy Uh, for me to concentrate on the other stuff. So yeah, I I don't mind at all. It's kind of, uh, see, I have the exact same, I have the exact opposite. Like this show, I did no prep work for all. And I I just (laughs) didn't have time. And I was like, you know what? I'm I'm not even going to worry about it. I'm just going to sit down and I'm I'm familiar with the topic enough to where if I have to throw something in that I can, and uh, I'll just sit back and, and, and sip my beer here and, uh, you know, we'll see where this goes. So it's always fun. It's always great. So, uh, Mm. let's wrap this up. Um, I will close it out as I always close it out and say this is Rojan Peace Out from Detroit. I know you don't have any kind of a closing line yet, so you just go ahead and do whatever you're going to do. Everyone, well, as my mom used to say when she sent us off to school, uh, study hard, have fun, and be a good kid. Where can people find your stuff before I let you go? Do you have you have a blog, right? You have a YouTube channel yes. that people can I have find? A, uh, yeah, I have a uh, blog, uh, Ghost Dog is a Mystery Box. It's uh, stephaniequick.home.com, I think. It's a WordPress blog. I have a YouTube channel, um, which you can find if you go on the blog and look at, at – I have some videos posted there. You could click through and see what the name of the channel is because I don't know what the exact name of it is because of YouTube. Party. Well, let's wrap this up and call it good. Have uh, okay. have a good rest of your holiday, whatever that is, sweetheart. <laughs> you too, and thank you again. Oh, no problem. You take care. Bye.